Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 137, The Boston Tea Party. In the early 1770s in London, the most pressing issue of the day was not America, but India. Britain's mercantilist system was starting to enter terminal decline, and this was showing itself in particular with the East India Company, which was burdened with an annual payment of £400,000. Then there were administrative costs in India, which were rising, smugglers were cutting into the tea trade, it was being badly managed, and then there was a great famine in Bengal. In short, its share price collapsed, and there was a financial panic. By September 1772, it had debts of £1.3 million and was nearing bankruptcy. The government had to do something. And it did. The Tea Act. The Tea Act lifted mercantilistic restrictions on the company's export of tea to the Americas so that it could compete with the smugglers. The smuggled tea was selling at 2 shillings 7 pence per pound, so they would introduce East Indian tea at two shillings. This would force down the price of the smuggled tea in turn. The company was to act as its own retailer. Over 1773-74, it was expected that the company would collect £31 million of tea, but would only be able to sell £13 million, leaving it stuck with £18 million. The company was required to keep £10 million stockpiled in case of a national emergency, which, as I'm drinking tea at the time of writing, feels exceptionally British. Therefore, the company had £8 million of tea to dump into the American market. Lord North's intentions were for the Tea Act, which was signed into law on the 10th of May 1773, to save the East India Company, and with it, imperial finances. No Americans or colonial merchants were consulted, which you would have thought the British would have learnt to do by now. North made an assumption that the Americans would be happy to have cheaper tea, and gave the matter no more thought. But we know better. We know that the tax on tea had become a matter of principle for the American merchants and patriots, We know that while most non-importation of British goods was stopped after the Townsend duties were removed, the boycott on British tea stayed. We know that the Americans sided with the smugglers over the enforcers of the Navigation Acts. We know that the American colonies resented outside interference and wouldn't like American merchants being cut out. We know how much anger trade duties caused the Americans, and that not removing the duty as part of the Tea Act was bound to create opposition. Dr Franklin recommended pairing the Tea Act with a repeal of the tea duty, which would have been a political masterstroke. However, such innovation was unknown in 18th century Whig thought, at least outside of the mind of Pitt the Elder or his spineless protégé, Rockingham. Dr. Franklin sounded the alarm, writing to the Speaker of Massachusetts 
that this was an attempt to bribe America into acquiescing to Britain's right to tax them, saying, quote, They have no idea that any people act from any other principle but that of interest, and they believe that three pence in a pound of tea is sufficient to overcome all the patriotism of an American. End quote. This wasn't the British intention, but it is shocking they didn't see how it would appear that way. In the years since 1770, correspondence committees had sprung up across America, in many ways becoming a shadow government. Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland and New York all started taking action against the Tea Act. But as always, Massachusetts took the lead. And by Massachusetts, I of course mean Boston, and by Boston, I of course mean Sam Adams. Sam Adams had been the leading Boston radical for years, and had set the groundwork in his favour. When Dr Franklin sent him letters written years before by the governor, Hutchinson, which could be twisted to make Hutchinson seem anti-American, against Franklin's wishes, Adams published the letters and Hutchinson's popularity disappeared, making him powerless to stop the events that were about to unfold. On November 28th, 1773, the first of three ships sailed into Boston Harbour filled with British tea. Adams wanted the tea to be shipped back to England, but this couldn't be done without permission from the governor, and Hutchinson was disinclined to acquiesce to Adams' wishes. Those responsible for the ships didn't dare to unload them. An uneasy stalemate endured. Hutchinson thought that time was on his side. If the customs duty had not been paid by December 17th, then he would legally be able to seize the tea. This was unacceptable to Adams. A town hall meeting was held on the night of December 16th, and it broke up with a signal from Adams. His followers, dressed as Mohawk Indians, marched to the harbour, boarded the three ships, and threw 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbour. This act of destruction of property was Sam Adams' masterpiece. It remains one of the acts of the American Revolution that has endured in the popular consciousness, and it was recognised as such at the time. Hutchinson would call it the boldest stroke which had yet been struck in America. John Adams wrote, This is the most magnificent moment of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. Over the following weeks and months, more tea ships arrived in America. Ten days later, ships were turned around in Philadelphia, while in Charlestown, South Carolina, a standoff occurred over 257 chests, until finally a compromise was reached that the tea could be offloaded, but would be locked away and not sold. 
Boston destroyed 30 more chests on the 9th of March 1774, and a tea party happened in New York on April 22nd when two tea ships arrived. A final tea party occurred in Annapolis, Maryland, in late 1774. Word arrived of what happened in Boston, reached Britain in January 1774, being published on January 20th. I think this is potentially the last moment where the American Revolution could have been averted. Britain could have stepped back, taken stock, and realised that if they wanted to hold on to the Americas, they would need to treat the Americans as equals in a joint enterprise, not as subjects to be pushed around. Instead, Parliament threw a tantrum. Massachusetts had been a thorn in their side for years. It was time that it be crushed. In the words of Lord North, quote, I would rather all the Hamilcars and all the Hannibals that Boston ever bred, all the Hancocks and all the Sadcocks, and sad dogs of Massachusetts Bay, all the heroes of tar and feathers and the champions mailers of unpatriotic horses, mares and mules, were led up to the altar, on to the liberty tree, there to be exalted and rewarded according to their merit or demerit, than Britain should disgrace herself by receding from her just authority. End quote. Using the terrible logic that orchestrated British accents, the Westminster leadership convinced themselves that their big mistake had been repealing the Stamp Act. This resulted in the Coercive Acts, known in America as the Intolerable Acts. The first of these was introduced on the 14th of March, the Boston Port Bill, which closed Boston to commerce until Boston became peaceful and obeyed the laws, a vague terminology that meant the port would be opened whenever the Privy Council decided. The bill was denounced in Parliament, particularly by Chatham and Rockingham, who decried that all of Boston should be punished for the actions of a few. It was changed so that Boston would be given an opportunity to pay the East India Company for the tea, and then the port would be opened. The Boston Port Act was signed by the King on the 31st of March. On April 15th, a new bill was introduced to Parliament, intended to restructure the governance of Massachusetts by creating a royal council for the governor to appoint all judges, sheriffs, and other law enforcement officers, along with sheriffs to select jury panels. It would limit town meetings to one a year. It would violate the Massachusetts Charter of 1691. Chatham and Rockingham condemned it, protesting that not only were Massachusetts's rights being violated, but its citizens were not even given a chance to defend it. It was criticised by experts on Massachusetts, such as former Governor Thomas Pownall, but passed both houses easily. The Massachusetts Government Act received royal assent on May 20th, the same day as the Administration of Justice Act, which allowed for persons accused of crimes, i.e. revenue officers, to be tried in another colony, or in Great Britain, 
Next up was the Quartering Act, that old issue that had been bubbling on for decades since the Seven Years' War. The Quartering Act applied to all the American colonies and allowed the governor to quarter troops wherever he decided. This was signed by the king on June 2nd. Lastly, we have the Quebec Act. The Quebec Act was not designed to be part of the Coercive Acts, but it had the same effect. It was intended to sort out the governance of Quebec by creating a legislative council and recognising the rights of the Catholic Church in Canada, but was particularly offensive because it gave Quebec authority in the Ohio and Illinois regions, which annoyed the other colonies who themselves wanted to expand there. At the same time as this, Gage, who fiercely supported the acts, was made governor of Massachusetts on April 7th. Hutchinson returned back to England. The reaction in America was one of rage. Thomas Jefferson called it a deliberate and systematic plan of reducing us to slavery. The Boston Evening Post wrote, It is not the rights of Boston only, but of all America, which are now struck at. Not the merchants only, but the farmer and every order of men who inhabit this noble continent. I said earlier that the coercive acts were a parting of ways, and you can really see it in the reactions to events. Firstly, many Americans were shocked and scandalised by the Boston Tea Party. Dr. Franklin believed that Boston should pay the East India Company for the destroyed tea, as did many in Boston. A group of prominent figures announced on May 18th that they would pay their share and urged the city to act. But as news of the intolerable acts travelled across the Atlantic, their position weakened. Against the wishes of a large minority, Boston was deciding to fight. When Gage called the Massachusetts House of Representatives to meet on June 7th, it refused to consider compensation. What it did was accept an extra-legal invitation from the Virginia House of Burgesses to meet on September 5th in Philadelphia. This was the first Continental Congress. We'll get to the first Continental Congress next time out, but I'd like to close this episode by focusing on Gage. Gage was struggling over the summer of 1774, he found a distinct lack of support from the Baptists, whom he had hoped to rely on. He'd tried to weaken John Hancock by stripping him of the command of a group of cadets, but the cadets resigned in protest. Some report he even attempted to bribe Sam Adams, which if he did try would have been ridiculous. As the city suffered due to the economic lockdown brought about by the closure of the port, hostility against Britain grew. He attempted to bring about the reforms of the Massachusetts Government Act when violence erupted outside of Boston. The presence of troops being the only thing stopping Boston itself from joining in. Farmers and villagers would not allow Gage's appointees to do their jobs. 
British authority was collapsing. Gage wrote on August 27th that the situation was ominous and recommended further coercion, arguing there could be no peace until the Patriots' leadership was arrested for treason and sent to Britain for punishment. This arrest would likely spark a wider conflict across New England. But Gage thought that it would be contained and not spread to the Middle Colonies or the South. Quote, The Southerners talk very high, but their numerous slaves in the bowels of their country and the Indians at their backs will always keep them quiet. End quote. Gage started to fortify Boston on September 3rd. But we'll leave Boston there for now. I'll join you next time when we look at the big event in Philadelphia. The First Continental Congress. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.